Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, you are true, righteous, just, and good. Blessed be your righteous name. We confess our longing and desire for justice presses upon us always. However, we also confess our zeal for justice is shot through with our sin-soaked understanding of righteousness, goodness, and truth. Our hearts sense the necessity of justice, but our thoughts and our actions betray us. And instead of loving and caring for others as we ought, we treat each other more like beasts. Oh, grant us your grace, I pray this morning, O oh Lord, that we might rest in and fix our hearts on the perfect embodiment of justice, the image and the great icon of justice, and that is Jesus Christ, our Savior, and his cross work. Through Christ and his cross, through that prism, may we evaluate and discern all justice. Grant us, I pray, Father, your spirit now that we might cling to the glorious justice that is set forward for us in this text. We ask these things, O Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, our righteousness. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So in some ways, the prayer of lament this morning uh, that was just a few moments ago uh, really could not serve a better introduction to our text that we have before us today. And so let's, uh, let's take a moment to get us back up to speed. We're parachuting back into really the middle of the book of Ecclesiastes. We were at it for several weeks, and then we've been away for a couple of weeks. So uh, let's, let's get back to our text and see the context and the foundation that is laid in chapters uh, 1 through 3 to allow us to be able to see with better clarity our text that's before us, and that is at the end of chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. I want to remind you again of the man who wrote this book. Hebrew name, his Hebrew title is Kohelet. You do not see that in the text, but you actually notice it in chapter 1, verse 1. You see there he's described as the preacher. The Hebrew word for that word preacher, or one who gathers people to impart to them, in this case, wisdom, to instruct them in the ways of the world, in this case, this preacher is, I'm going to be referring to him as Kohelet. That's his Hebrew name. Also be referencing him as also the preacher. He is likely, and most people understand him to be Solomon himself. I understand him to be Solomon, the one who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Again, he is gathering God's people for the purpose of imparting wisdom into them, helping them understand the world from the stance of that which is under the sun, meaning that the world from really a, a stance where God is not really a part of the picture. It's everything we can observe and consider as we just look at the world as it is. And what does that bring us? It brings us, according to chapter 1, verse 2, it brings us to the point that we acknowledge that apart from God, without God being a part of our understanding of the world and everything that's in it, vanity of vanities, chapter, two, chapter 1, verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Vanity is not simply worthlessness or absurdity, but instead vanity has the idea of uh, a puff of air, it's an idea of it being a breath or mist, a, a vapor, something that's here one moment and gone the next. This idea of vanity 
is basically speaking then of the, the passing nature of our lives, the temporary, ethereal, fleeting kind of life that many of us live. And we know that many translations have tried to grasp this term as, they've, as they've translated the book of Ecclesiastes. Many have translated it as meaninglessness or pointlessness, futility or absurdity. But then Kohelet brings us to the question that really frames the entire book of the book of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 1, verse 3, it asks this, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? All of us have been given work, given jobs and responsibilities. All of us have been given callings. What gain is it then if we completely um, look at the world as it is and just understand as the world is, is kind of uh, in, it, in its own sphere, in its own understanding? He gives some solutions. He says that this vanity has been pressing in on people and, and it drives them crazy. They can't stand the fact that everything is meaninglessness because they've rejected God. They're trying to understand the world without God in it. And so they try to pursue things to push back this vanity that is driving them crazy, that's annoying them. And so they've pursued wisdom, thinking maybe wisdom will drive back or push back this vanity. That's chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. He says there that wisdom does not have the ability to add one bit to this vanity that's in life. It is not able to uh, overcome it or triumph over it. And then he evaluates life and he says, okay, if wisdom can't do this, if it's not the solution for vanity, then maybe one of these more tried and true experiments will work. And that is extravagant pleasure. We know people like that. Maybe some of you sitting here today that you want to live your life on your own, by yourself, without God and any reference to God. And you want to give your lives to pleasure, thinking that pleasure will push back the emptiness and the and the vapor-like life that you know you're living. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, speaks of this, this extravagant pleasure that he pursued in hopes that it would push back pleasure, or push back vanity. He found that even pleasure, for all the promises that the world gives to it, it inevitably fails as well. In fact, it causes the vapor-like vanity of life to be even more pronounced, more clear. Neither wisdom nor pleasure can do anything to push back vanity. So the question then is asked um, later in chapter 2. It says, well, if that's the case, then why don't we just jettison wisdom? It's harder anyway. Let's just pursue vanity. Let's be hedonists and do whatever we want to and live the way we want to. Chapter 2, verse 13, Kohelet tells us that there's more gain in wisdom than folly. And so don't be foolish to pursue pleasure in and of itself. And then finally, he gives another solution. The first was wisdom. The second was pleasure. The third we see... In chapter 2, verses 18 through 26, and he says, let's pursue work and toil. Let's, let's throw ourselves into our jobs. Let's, let's do everything we can to make a, a name for ourselves. Let's do everything we can to, to, to have a huge family and to care for them and all these children. And, and that's going to be what makes life meaningful and worthwhile. Let's give ourselves to our work and toil. And we see in chapter 2, verses 18 through 26, that even that test, Kohelet says, fails. It does not push back vanity. Our lives are still a vapor, and they still seem all but meaninglessness, meaningless. And so look with me, if you will. We've moved through chapters 1 and 2. Look with me at chapter 3. You see very clearly that the chapter now is turning, the theme. There's no longer the solutions here, but the theme now turns to time. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. If everything is a vapor... And vanity, 
then are the times and seasons that we live in meaningless? Notice the preacher brings us back to the question that he asked earlier in chapter 1, verse 2, that very poignant question that is necessary for us all to ask, and that is this. In chapter 3, verse 9, look with me. Chapter 3, verse 9 asks almost the exact same question as chapter 1, verse 2, and it says this, What gain has the worker from his toil? What's the meaning of all this? The preacher continues to assure us that our work and our various times in life have a purpose and an aim. In fact, God is orchestrating them. But here's the frustrating thing. As God orchestrates them, he does not tell us what seasons we're entering into or coming out of. It's for him to plan. It's for him to accomplish. And this is frustrating to us. We like to plan our lives. We like to have an understanding of um, this world, this life, everything in it is me and about me. Chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, it really gives an appealing understanding of this. It says this in chapter 3, verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And then he says this in verse 11. He has made everything beautiful or appropriate in its time. Our text today then presses this theme. Everything is beautiful. It's appropriate in its time. And our text this morning says, yes, but there's something we're, we're missing here. We're, we're really, it's easy to look at life in rose-colored glasses at this point. If everything's beautiful and appropriate in its time, and God is the one over and orchestrating all things, then the question that we all must ask, the question that we cannot avoid, the question that we must be willing to realistically approach, and that the preacher here, Kohelet, is wanting us to face this morning, is what about injustice? It's not just injustice, but it is the pervasive injustice that's in the world. If everything has its appropriate time or season, then what about the apparent injustice in the world? Wouldn't this pervasive corruption in everything around us destroy any hope for gain and value in our work? Can it be that we give our lives to a vocation or a calling of some sort, whether it be a mother or a father or a husband or a, or, or a, or a, a wife? Could it be that we give our lives maybe to a job or occupation or to a business and we, and we give all of our lives to it, and then just, just years before we die, it falls apart or goes away or goes in a direction that is deplorable, nothing like you would want to see. You see, there's injustice in the world. How then can we assume that there's gain in anything that we do? These questions confirm the very truth that we see here right before we enter into our text. Look with me at chapter 3, verses 14 through, 6, 15, 14, 14 through 15 of chapter 3. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. If the vanity of all things causes us fear because it could be that our lives, our times, our seasons are actually meaningless, it, it can create fear in our hearts, doubt in our hearts, then isn't it true that the frustration of the burden of vanity gets ratcheted up one more level when we, when we think about the comprehensive vanity of life 
in light of the prevalent injustices in our world. When we put those together, when we think of comprehensive vanity and then prevalent injustice, it moves us from frustrating burden and it can, it can actually move us to outright despair. Outright despair. How does the world around us face these weighty realities? How can we understand both this, this knowledge in us that life is short, it's a vapor, it's here today and gone tomorrow, and this prevalent injustice that we've seen in our world even this week? How do we live in this kind of world? These are some of the things that we're going to be considering this morning as we look at our text together. Verses 16 through 22, I want us to notice it in three, the flow of our text in three points. In three points. So these are three points for the message this morning. We've taken a little longer to get here because we've been away from Ecclesiastes for a few weeks. So uh, thank you for your patience. Points one, two, and three. Point number one, observation. Observation. Beside that, right, injustice prevails. Observation. Injustice prevails. This is verse 16. Point number two, reflection. And beside that, right, God's judgment and testing. This is verses 17 through 22. Or excuse me, verses 17 through 21. Verses 17 through 21. Observation, injustice prevails. Reflection, God's judgment and testing. This is verses 17 through 21. And then point number three, confirmation. Confirmation, rejoice in your work. Rejoice in your work. Verse 22. Observation, injustice prevails. Reflection, God's judgment and testing. Confirmation, rejoice in your work. Do you see the very first word of our text here this morning? It is actually saying, it's emphasizing the very fact that, that it's, it's, it's taking our, our frustration and our burden of, of what's happening around us and the fact that we are not in control and that God is, it's, it's taking it up one more notch. That's why in every one of our texts, every one of the English texts, it speaks, it says, moreover. Other translations say, furthermore. In other words, it's saying, um, if, if, if the frustration of, of God ordering and orchestrating all this time, and we have no idea how that's going to come and go, if that's not frustrating enough, now we're going to mix into that equation this idea of injustice that's everywhere and that everybody knows exists. Listen to the disheartening observation as he ratchets up the, the intensity of the burden that we must bear as we look at the world together as humanity. Listen to this disheartening observation, point number one. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, that means in the place where justice is to be uh, declared and stood for, in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Notice that here, the preacher who is Solomon, the one man who was given by God wisdom surpassing all others. He is saying here, I saw under the sun. The point here is this in, in, uh, in, in this passage, even in, in Ecclesiastes 1.16, it speaks of his, his, his wisdom beyond all others that have gone before him. He's not simply saying here, I'm, I'm having an afternoon musing, or I'm, I'm taking a glance at this and considering it for a few moments. No, this idea of I saw under the sun actually speaks of this concerted effort where he's contemplated and thought and considered and calculated. He's genuinely observing what's happening. And in this case, 
under the sun. He's saying, I'm looking at the world around me. I'm considering all those things that I see around me. And as I look at the things that are under the sun, those things that are all around me, and objectively observing all of these things, he says this, the world that we see is the world that he sees. And the world that we see in our eyes, the conclusion is this, that every place he looks where justice is supposed to be declared and and justice is supposed to be defended, he says in those places, He's finding that there's wickedness there. In the place where justice is supposed to be stood up for and cared for, there's wickedness. He goes on and he says, the place where righteousness is to be declared and insisted upon, where righteousness is to be set forward and shown for all of its glory and beauty. He says, even there, in that place of righteousness where people should go and have this justice and have this righteousness, the very thing that our souls long for, He says, in those places, we see even wickedness there. We see justice and righteousness falling to the ground. Now, we know, brothers and sisters, that our hearts are hardwired for justice. Turn a blind eye from one who has snuffed out the life of a person that's precious to you in your life and the rightful fury is understandable. Turn a deaf ear to those who are unable to defend themselves and disregard their rights and dignity. And a consuming determination rises up in many of us, if not all of us, that cannot be overlooked. That is right and good. Justice is put in every one of us. And the reason that is the case is because all of us are image bearers. We've been made image bearers by God. And God is a God of righteousness and justice. And so each and every one of us looked at the events that took place this past week and we say those are wrong and justice needs to take place. However, let's be clear, our sin has so twisted and corrupted our understanding of even justice that we are hard-pressed to actually find justice where it needs to be. Even our children, many of us, if not all of us, as children, if we have children, we know this is true, they will come to you and they will demand and they will insist this is not fair. There's something even in our children that is wanting justice. And yet we see even in our children, even in our hearts when we were children, we don't understand what fair is. We're not quite sure of what righteousness and justice really is. It doesn't matter the age or the experience in life. God is righteous and just. And all that he is, who he is, is righteous and just. All that he does is righteous and just. And as image bearers, there is therefore a hardwired nature in us, a deep sense of justice and righteousness. Now, this is never going to be correct and informed rightly unless it is informed by God's word. Even this week, we noticed in the news and we shared that in this case where the preacher is making this observation in our, in our passage here this morning, that the earthly systems that we have around us, the earthly systems that are to promote justice and righteousness in our society, in our society, they're broken. The courts are ruled by corrupt lawyers. The states are controlled by corrupt politicians. 
Brothers and sisters, sadly, even this week, we were told that the churches are led by corrupt leaders. In the place of justice, there is wickedness. In the place where righteousness is to be declared, there's wickedness. Wickedness and corruption and injustice, sadly, in our society today, has become the norm, not the exception. Our systems are broken. The establishment that is being brought around us for the purpose of justice, justice and righteousness is no longer able to be trusted. This is a difficult world we live in. This is the observation that Kohelet, the preacher, is making here in verse 16. Now, he doesn't say, okay, work on that for a while and let's come back and deal with it later. I mean, that, that's pretty weighty truth there. That's something that we need to grapple with. We, none of us are okay with that. We shouldn't be. And so Kohelet then goes on and he says, let me reflect on a couple of things that I think of when I think of the injustice, the wickedness that is happening in our society today. Notice point number two, if you will, reflection. And he reflects on two different things. He reflects on God's judgment and he reflects on God's testing. I hope you see those here in the text. I don't want you to think I'm, I'm just drawing them out of nowhere. Notice with me, if you will, in chapter, in chapter 3, um, specifically in verse 17. Look, he says there, I said in my heart. Do you see that phrase? Whereas just a minute ago, he made the comment, I saw under the heavens. That's an observation. You see, he was making an observation. He was, he was looking at everything. He was evaluating things. But now he is, he's making a reflection. He's saying, I'm, I'm thinking through this in my heart, in my very soul, in my very spirit. I'm thinking about these things. They're weighty on my heart. And so verse 17 then, verse 17, he says, he says I said in my heart. Look with me again at verse 18. At verse 18, he says it again. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man. Both of these are reflections that he is giving to us to evaluate and to assess this horrendous observation that he's made that is so true and that none of us can deny. So these two reflections I want us to consider this morning. The first reflection is that God will judge. Can it be any more clear here in the text? This is the first truth that he says we must reflect on when we consider the injustice that's in the world around us. Verse 17 says, I said in my heart, I considered it together in my heart, I, I reflected on this, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, and there is a time for every matter and for every work. What a sobering truth for all of us to take to heart this morning especially. After the week that we've been through and that our country has looked at, God has promised that he will judge. God will see to it to make all things right and good one day. Injustice and corruption will not be swept under the rug, looked away from, or ignored. Now, notice what he's saying here. He says, God will judge. Most think that this isn't just simply God will judge one day later in the final judgment. That is included here for sure. But it's also speaking of the fact that all these times and seasons that are going on. Notice it says here in the end of verse 17, he says, For there is a time for every matter and for every work. It's here reckoning back to the beginning of chapter 3 where he says there's a time for to dance and a time to have a dirge. There's a time to, to, to gather up. There's a time to scatter. And he's saying there will be a time for judgment. And in fact, here on earth, there's judgment that takes place. There's consequences to wrongdoing. 
And we should be thankful for that and we should promote that and we should pray for that to happen here and now in this world that we live in that is so very broken that more and more justice is done. We need to ask the Lord to do that. So it's not only in history of humanity, but it's also at the final judgment. The last judgment is what it's called. In other words, He will, God will vindicate the righteous and raise them up to a position of honor and well-being according to His law of righteousness. The righteous will prevail. Now all of us want to say amen. All of us want to rally around that beautiful and wonderful declaration. If we thought we were just a little bit more righteous ourselves. Judgment's a scary thing. Judgment is a scary thing. We need to understand that the Lord is not going to play favorites. There is the righteous and there is the wicked. There will not be a middle ground. But the fact that God is a God of righteousness and justice should stabilize our hearts in a world that seems so chaotic and so driven to be opposed to justice. Our hearts can, I know my heart, get so frustrated at the world, become angry even at the injustices of the world. I feel like I need to go and put my hands on something and try to fix it because it's so, so damning to everyone that's around it. There's so many people being harmed and hurt. My heart becomes frustrated and, and stirred up. Honestly, I confess that even in the last few weeks, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly having to preach to myself to, to calm down because I'm wanting to attack and deal with all of the injustices that are in the world that are around me. This truth, however, should, should secure us that God is the one who's judging. God is the one that's running this world. Abraham himself was troubled in his heart when the Lord told him what would happen to Sodom. Abraham wasn't the one who said, Yes, Lord, go and get them. They all deserve it. Take them out. But instead, when the wrath of God was promised to Sodom, Abraham says, he's actually, the, the angels leave, and Abraham remains there with the Lord and says, So the men turned from there, that's the angels, and went toward Sodom. So they're going to do their bidding. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. This is Genesis 18. Then Abraham drew near and said, Listen to, his, listen to his question. He's asking the Lord this. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Do you realize how important the question that is? Lord, are you going to do something that's not just? Because that's all I see around me. And because that's all I see around me, the assumption is that maybe you're a God who's not just. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing. This is Abraham talking to the Lord. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That's what Abraham's asking the Lord. Isn't it true that the, the judge of all the earth, that he should be doing that which is just? The Lord speaks to Abraham in that day and he said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, 
I will spare the whole place for their sake. That's not justice, that's mercy. That's mercy. He's going to spare the entire city for the sake of 50 righteous. Did you hear the concern of Abraham? He was concerned that God's judgment would be such, so intense and so exacting that both the righteous and the wicked would be swept away. That no, no humanity could stand before him. Our text here before us clearly helps us see that both the wicked and the righteous will indeed stand before God one day, but their judgment will be very different. We know that from other places in Scripture. This is what's so important when we read the book of Ecclesiastes or when we study the book of Ecclesiastes. We need to realize that this book is in a larger book. The Holy Spirit wrote it all. And so truth can be found in other places for us to be able to help us support and understand what's happening here. In this case, we find that the righteous and the wicked will come before God, but they will be judged differently. Our confession speaks of it in this way. Our confession, chapter 30, is on the last judgment, and it says this. God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day, and I find this interesting, this phrase, not only of the apostate angels shall be judged. Now, why did he throw that in? Because God's not just judging the things here on earth. Every atom and molecule in creation stands before his throne. Not only apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon the earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their every thought, word, deed, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. We're doomed. We're doomed. We have no hope. If this is the judgment, then there's, there's no hope. Let me continue. We notice here in our text before us in chapter 3, it goes on and it says, There is a time for every matter and every work. In other words, God's timing, though not like our timing, will surely and perfectly bring exact justice and righteousness to bear. When the injustice in the world and in our lives create fear and anxiety and tension between our faith and the onslaught of everything that we're experiencing in way of injustice that's all around us, the way of pain and sorrow and evil starts pressing in on our lives, our hearts are easily going toward doubt and for some of us even despair because of the tragedies that are not only in our lives but in the lives that are around us. Faith. Faith, brothers and sisters. Is where we must turn. We turn to the one who has said that in Christ Jesus he will make us, and this is, this is astonishing, by faith in Christ Jesus we are declared or reckoned righteous. Not on the basis of what we have done, but on the basis of Christ and his righteousness we have received all of this. Faith, brothers and sisters, is what will triumph, knowing that the perfect good and true judgments of God will prevail Trusting in Christ and Him alone, we are neither tempted to try to judge the world for ourselves, nor are we sunk into despair because of, because of all the things that are around us. Instead, we turn our eyes to one who says He is just 
and the justifier of those who believe in his name. Just and the justifier. How in the world can that be? Because every single sin and judgment, judgment for sin, every single ounce of wrath that we deserve was poured upon the body of Jesus Christ. It was paid in full. And now to, for God to judge us for our wickedness would be unjust. It would be not righteous. Because Christ paid that penalty for all who would place their faith in him. God will judge. That's one thing we must reflect on when we look at the injustices around us. Secondly, I want you to notice verses 18 through 21. This is a larger section. And as we read it, we'll see if we're going to reflect on this, it causes a little more thought for us to understand this. The second truth that Kohelet wants us to reflect on as we consider the injustice, the obvious injustices in the world and the vanity that's all around us is that God is testing us. God is testing. Look at verses, verse 8, if you will. Chapter 3, verse 8. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Notice how Kohelet's reflecting on this. He's saying, I said in my heart. He's wanting us to consider and reflect and consider this together. This reflection is aimed specifically at a particular group. He's calling them the children of man. In other words, those who are image bearers of God, those who are the pinnacle of God's creation, man and woman. Genesis 1.27, for God created man in his image, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. They are unique as his creation. They are image bearers of our God. We are his humanity, are image bearers of him. So let's reflect on this truth a minute then. It says here that God is testing them. God is testing them. Earlier it said that God will judge. Did you hear that? God will judge. In other words, that's something that's going to happen throughout history and also specifically at the end time, the final judgment. But notice what it says here. It says here specifically, he's saying now he wants us to reflect on the fact that God is, God is testing the children of men. Truth is really difficult for us to grasp. God is testing his image bearers. But why would he be doing that? To show them that we're not the amazing people that we think we are. That we're not all that smart. I mean, yeah, we've got Google and we've sent somebody to the moon and we do pretty amazing things and we've got devices and gadgets and we're able to do all kinds of wonderful and awesome things, but we are not as special as we think we are. You're not, and I am not, good at heart. Your little girl is not an angel. We're not. We're not what we think we are. He goes on, he says, he's testing us. He's showing us, he's proving to us that left to ourselves. Do you see the text there? It says, says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves, in other words, they left to themselves without God, without any reference to God, ignoring who God is, just left to their own devices, they themselves will come to nothing but beasts. In other words, we will not only think of ourselves as simply biological, physical bodies that come into the world and then go away, but then we'll start treating each other that way too. 
The clearest example of this in our modern day is one who's considered to be an intellectual elite of our day. I mention him as really a, a one end of the spectrum, the real extreme on one side, just so we can get an idea of where our world is going. The sad thing is that even though this person is an intellectual elite, he's gaining quite a bit of traction in our world today and in the thinking of a lot of the political elites. His name is Peter Singer. He's a philosophy professor of bioethics in the, and here's the, here's the place he works. It's called the University Center of Human Values. Okay, did you hear that? That's the place he works, the University Center of Human Values. Now, the university is none other than Princeton, and so he's considered a leading intellectual of his day. And he is probably one of the ones that writes the most about animal rights. Pretty sad. Albert Moeller explains Singer's understanding as gaining traction in our society today, our secular society. And he goes on and he states this, Singer argues, and I quote, Singer argues that some animals actually possess some capacities that some human beings lack, meaning that maybe the animals are more rightly persons than are some human beings. Peter Singer takes this so far, takes this so far not only as to support the legality of abortion, but also of emphasize, arguing that it would be a more it would be moral under certain circumstances to kill even babies, these are babies that are born. Even babies who have been born, if they lack certain capacities that we would define as being required for human persons. Do you think that if we live in a world without reference to God, that we would become beasts? We will. And that's an extreme case. And it's easy to wag the finger and point and say, listen, that's, that's crazy. And those intellectual elites need to be handled. But let's be careful. Because it is just as beastly, if you will, when we begin defining justice in our own homes or in our own church or in our own communities, more in psychological and sociological frameworks, both of those are without reference to God. You know that, don't you? Both the psychology and sociology of our world, they, they, have, a, they have a science that is honestly nothing better than what is being set forward in Africa is voodoo. I believe the psychology and sociology, most if not all of it, is no better than the voodoo of, of, of Africa that we can make fun of. It is godless, does have no reference to God. If we define justice as in psychological and sociological frameworks instead of with a true and clear theological categories that the Bible sets forth for us, and demand justice that is rooted in God's law and who God is, when we are committed to him and his word, when we define justice and what sin is, instead of just simply assumptions and preferences that we may have for each other, when we do that, we too are acting beastly. We've rejected God, and we've rejected Christ, and we call ourselves Christians all along the way. Oh, that we might look to Jesus Christ and his atoning death as our only hope for justice and refuse to allow anything other than Jesus Christ to be our righteousness. Brothers and sisters, we, we look at the scriptures and we see everywhere where God's people were in the culture and they began taking on the deities and the belief systems and the, and the ungodliness of Egypt, of Babylon, of, of, of Canaanites, of the Romans, 
And we think that we live in America and we can distinguish those things. Don't think so. Don't think we're wiser than them. We are absorbing the godlessness and the theology or the atheology of our culture when we allow those who are godless to inform us concerning our souls and our hope that we have. Getting back to the text, verses 19 through 20, has to address this. If he's going to call us beasts, he's got to deal with this somehow, right? In what ways, then, are children of man like beasts? We see this in verses 19 through 20. We see this in verses 19 through 20. Ecclesiastes 19 says, For what happens to the children of man and what happens to beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to the dust all return. We see here, Kohelet is simply observing the world. He's saying any and everybody can, can, can use their eyeballs and look around at the world and make these observations. This requires nothing more than simply looking around and looking at the world and considering the things that are around us and, and objectively taking a look at what's going on. And he says this, Both, sons of man and the beast, both die. As one dies, so dies the other. You see that there? But notice that he explains this bitter truth by giving us three other commonalities of this death, common observations that anyone can make. The first is this. He says, they have the same breath. What he's saying here is this, is that we have no advantage, it says here in the passage, we have no advantage, but instead we are just as frail as the animals. As soon as our breath expires, we die just like they do. We're so very frail. So very frail. In this way, the life of a person is just like the vapor-like temporary lives of animals. This is why in verse 19 at the end, he says, notice, in the verse 19, he says, for all is vanity. Psalm 104, verse 29 says this, When you hide your face, this is speaking of the Lord, when you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. You do know that the Lord knows the exact moment that you'll breathe your last. It's not going to be one day later, one moment sooner. Let's not live our lives in fear and anxiety about dying. It's going to happen. And the Lord has ordered that. Let's live with confidence in Him. We're just as frail as the animals. We both have breath. The second commonality in this death is this. He says, all go to one place. Notice, and that place is the grave. Both man and beast find their rest in the grave. The Old Testament word for grave is Sheol. Psalm 49 spoke of it this morning in our, in our call to worship. Listen to how the psalmist explains those who live with no regard to God. Their grave are their homes forever. They're dwelling places to all generations. This is Psalm 49, verse 11. They're dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own name, that's pretty substantial. I live my life and I've got an entire region that's called after my name. Man in his pomp will not remain. 
He's like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people will approve their boast. Like sheep, they are appointed to Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. So man and beast are similar in that they have breath. They require the same thing, breathing. Beast and man are like the same. They're similar in this and they go to the same place. They go to the grave. Finally, we see here, they are similar in their substance. They're similar in their substance. In other words, they're made of the, st- of the same stuff. It says here in our passage, all are from the dust and to the dust all return. This is reference to the truth given to us earlier, in, very early in our Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, I want us to remember, we need to, we need to latch on to this. We need to remember that Kohelet here is saying, this is how we understand the world when we have no reference to God. Everyone that's under the sun, meaning all they're doing is looking at the things that the sun shines on, they're able to reflect on the world and the things in the world, and they're able to say, Man will breathe his last. And when he breathes his last, he's going to fall into the grave. And when he falls into the grave, he's going to become dust. This is not due to revelation that he's saying these things. This is due to observation. Observation. And given this observation alone, he's saying, and I want to be clear here, this observation alone kind of mentality is the way the secular world thinks today. They want us to think without regard to God because if God is in heaven and he's going to judge us, there's a lot of stuff that has to be made right. But the secular world today says, I want to live in such a way as to to observe everything and we're going to be smart enough where we can actually progress and move forward without reference to God because he doesn't exist. And you know what Kohelet says? We'll end up treating each other not well, but like beasts, like animals. Kohelet goes on and he says, he says, there's only there's only one way for us to think past this, for us to move beyond this beast like existence. And that is to acknowledge that only God knows these things. And if we're going to if we're to understand what happens after the grave, if we're to understand what happens beyond just simply physical bodies, what happens to our spirit? then we must look to God and God alone. That's why in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 21, he's asking a very real question. He says, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? What he's saying here is this, is that I can look all day long and observe physical things. I can see the man dying when he breathes his last. I can see the man dying and falling into the grave. I can see the man turning into dust. I cannot discern with my eyes whether there's a spirit in him that will go up. And that's different than the spirit of, of, of an animal that goes down. I, don't, I can't discern that with my eyes. There's not an ability for me to do that. What he's saying here is this. He's not simply asking a question of doubt. He's not doubting God. He's not simply um, saying anything other than this is the experience that all of us can have. And this is what he's saying. Here's the point. God knows. God knows. So in order for us to understand, we need to understand what God says about these things. 
He draws on God's revelation later. It's not that Kohelet isn't, isn't aware of this. In fact, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7, he says, The dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. You see, Kohelet knows what's going on. He's just now entering into his world and saying, This is the crazy secular world we live in. This is how they have to understand and reason things because they refuse to acknowledge that God is ultimately our God who judges us and who is testing us and showing us with all kinds of clarity just how beastly we are when we reject his authority in our lives. I want you to listen again to the psalmist in Psalm 49, which we read again this morning during the time of uh, the call to worship. Listen to him as he explains the vanity and hopelessness of all who seek to live their own lives in their own pomp and with a view to the world and the world alone. Psalm 49, verses 6 through 9. Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly. Listen, and can never suffice. They can't, they can't, they can't hoard enough stuff. They can't have a big enough boat. They can't have a nice enough house. They can't have a big enough bank account. And it goes on and says, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Death is going to bring us all to the reality that we're more than just bodies. We're more than just biology. Psalm 49 goes on. Last week, we as a congregation meditated on this psalm. This week, we're meditating on Psalm 50. But this week, we're, we're, well, last week we looked at Psalm 49, so I'm hoping that these verses are resonating from your, your, your time in Psalm 49 last week. Psalm 49 verse 12 says this, Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beast that perish. Do you hear that? This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed to Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol. In other words, who they are and what they're made up of as bodies, that'll be consumed in Sheol or in the grave. With no place to dwell. Listen to the last verse, Psalm 49, verse 15. But God will ransom my soul from the power, and it is a it is an, an ultimate, final, unmitigated power, the power of the grave, the power of Sheol. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. Listen to this last phrase. This is glorious. Listen. God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. Listen. For he will receive me. He will receive me. Do you believe that? This can't be observed. This isn't something we can look around and figure out. This isn't something we can put in a test tube and and think through. The Lord is calling us to believe him. The maker of our souls, the maker of our bodies. He says that he will ransom us. How can he ransom us? How is it that those that are sinners, unrighteous, wicked men and women, how can he ransom our soul from the power of Sheol so that we don't perish like the pompous that he's spoken of earlier in chapter 49 of Psalms? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. 
You've heard that before, right? For just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, listen to the next phrase, so Christ. Having been offered once to bear the sins of many, there's the ransom, will appear the second time, not to deal with sin, listen, but to save. To save those who are eagerly awaiting for Him. What a blessing. That is what our Savior has called us to. That is not something we can simply observe by reflecting on the things that are around us. Brothers and sisters, notice the hopelessness of the secular world. Do not let their thinking, their observations, their um, conclusions seep into our hearts. We have a hope. We are not just looking around and thinking of ourselves as simply beasts, animals, biology. Let me end, as the preacher does here, giving a concluding confirmation that flows from both the observation of the injustices in the world and the two reflections that we just noticed in our text. Verse 22, notice with me the confirmation. And the confirmation is rejoice in your work. Look with me at verse 22. So I saw, there again, he's, he's reflecting again, he's, he's, he's uh, experimenting again, he's looking again, and he's acknowledging this is something I saw and I understood. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Let me summarize it this way. God is in is absolute control of all of our times and seasons. That's chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. He even has a divine purpose for the hard providences in all of our lives, like human injustices that seem to be so chaotic and the world is so driven toward. <clears throat> but even these have their time when the Lord himself will surely judge in righteousness. He is even using these now to test humanity, to press upon us that we are not as good as we think we are, but instead we need to live justly in this world, that under the sun we are indeed foolish, and we will become those like beasts if left to ourselves. Who knows if, anyone, if anything really matters after we go to the grave? Who knows whether we will ascend into heaven or go into the grave? Vanity indeed is this vision, this worldview, but God knows. But God knows. And so turn, brothers and sisters, turn, friend, and repent of the pompous, beastly lifestyle that you are living in and trust in Christ Jesus alone. When you do, your heart is free from the fettering, of fretting over the injustices and calamities of this world. You can enjoy the earthly blessings, not worried about what day you're going to die, knowing that it is in the hands of God. You can enjoy the work and the food and the drink and the possessions. These are all gifts from God, and they're to be enjoyed as an expression of His mercy and His grace and His love towards us. These things, what we have and what we don't have, are our lot or our portion. Do you see that there in verse 22? For that is His lot. And we can rejoice knowing that all these blessings and pleasures are only a foretaste. They're only a foretaste of the things that will come and that have been promised in God's word. We have no idea what exactly will happen after our life is ended. We have no concept. All we have is God's word to guide us and direct us in this way. However, we can trust his word. And we can trust our good and righteous and just Savior to do this. All of those who place their faith in Christ 
God will ransom their soul from the power of Sheol. And he will receive them. I believe that all of those who do that will look upon the land, look upon the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living. But brothers and sisters, we're not in the land, we're not in the, we're not in the land of the living right now. We're in a pretty cruel world. We're in a pretty harsh world. We're in a world full of injustice and sin. So what do we do? What do we do now? We wait for the Lord. Psalm 27, 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let us pray together.